the DI Guys podcast was created to share the best ideas, strategies, and concepts so you can have conversations to help you exponentially grow your DI sales. While they may have lost their hair, they have not lost their minds. Here are the DI Guys, Chris Carlson and Mike Cogdo. This is Chris Carlson, and welcome to this episode of the DI Guys podcast. We hope you had the opportunity to join us for the 2021 DI Days that was sponsored by the Plus Group. It was an amazing event with great presentations. In this episode, we want to replay the interview I had with Mark Kenback of Principal, where we discussed crafting the GSI offer. We hope you enjoy the replay. So our closing session of DI Days is entitled Crafting the Guaranteed Standard Issue Offer. And my guest is Mark Kimback, Assistant VP, DI Multi-Life Marketing at Principal. Mark is one of the smartest people I know in the business, and he has taught me a lot over the years. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, so, Mark, I'm going to kick it off today with kind of the the elephant that's been in the room for all of our presentation, COVID-19. When you think about guaranteed standard issue, GSI, Guaranteed two issue, GTI. How has COVID-19 affected this market, if at all? Well, I think initially it, you know, it scared me a lot and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to deal with it. Uh, The positive pieces that I looked at were that we have a 90 day or 180 day elimination period on all the GSI stuff that we do. So my hope was that even with uh, some people being impacted, it wouldn't necessarily hit the claims right away. I think based on what we've seen so far, most of the initial claims that came in were kind of what-if situations. They weren't actually disabled. They were concerned about being disabled. Maybe they had a heart problem, but there was no specific disability at the time. So we had a few come in Obviously, you have to set up reserves, but there were no claims. I don't think we've been impacted to this point in a great way, but I think it's still too early to make a determination of whether or not there are lingering claims still to come. People who go on and, you know, I've heard more and more about long-term fatigue, things like that, but at this point, it didn't cause us to change a lot in the underwriting of cases, and it hasn't impacted in a big way yet. But I do put that word yet in there because I'm just not sure what's still to come down the road. It's you know to be determined. I, I like that answer. So, Mark, obviously, uh, the, the GSI multi-life market has become so popular with many of the, the carriers that we've traditionally associated with individual DI policies. What was the genesis for so many carriers jumping on this bandwagon? Well, I think in in the discussion, as soon as I start talking about this, age is going to come up because it's now over 40 years for me in the business. And I can actually say that um, I think I was around when some of the first cases were put on the books. And I think when... The actuaries were looking back 35 years ago. The trend they saw was that each year, and again, docs had a big part of this, 
each year we were writing fewer and fewer policies, but with higher and higher premiums. So I remember being in the room at Paul Revere, which was the company I was with back then, where one of the actuaries said, someday, you know, we're going to write five policies at $500,000 a piece, the way that, you know, the trends were going. So everybody kind of laughed, but he made his point. We had to get into a situation where we could write more policies at one time rather than going through the one policy per sale. And the other piece of it was the producers needed daytime activity. So the terminology back then was aptivity. You were looking to write more apps and daytime activity, tying the two together. And I think that was really the early genesis of the concept of why multi-life would work. And then I'll give credit, um, and I'm guessing a lot of people on this call probably who have been in the business for a while, worked with a gentleman named Charlie Havens at Paul Revere, who was, in my mind, the person that really started looking at the concept of could you, if you wrote these multi-life cases, do some of it on a guarantee issue basis. And he, he's the person that taught me the business. And I think there's other people on this call who he also taught the business or who worked with him over the years. And I kind of consider him the, uh, the godfather of GSI. What a title to have. Yeah. Hey, Mark, how do you balance a competitive offer with acceptable loss ratios? What's going through that, that brainiac mind of yours when you're doing that? I, I, I think it's always been the tough piece, but I think as the years go on, the numbers start to dictate things for you. For example, we have good experience on employer pay 100% participation cases. We don't have great experience on voluntary cases. So, but we know there's markets in both places. There's markets for the employer pay and there's markets for the voluntary. So what you have to look at is what are the trade-offs? What are you willing to do in order to stay aggressive in either one of the markets? I really haven't found the answer in the voluntary market. I, I'm, I'm still kind of out there, even after 40 years, trying to figure out how to do voluntary on a profitable basis. On an employer pay basis, I think it's there. I think the numbers have been consistent year after year of saying, yeah, you can do this employer paid business well if you are careful. And what you have to be careful of is a lot of pre-existing cases, you know, people who have been um, clearly identified as having health conditions and then getting thrown in with three or four or five other people in order to make a case. And, um, and again, on the voluntary side, even with participation rates that are halfway decent, I still think the voluntary business is really tough unless you get producers who know what they're doing, who've done it on a regular basis and who can, um, you know, do some selection prior to getting in there in order to protect from the, you know, people that are going to jump on early who are usually those individuals with health issues. So it, it's, it's a lot of blending for sure. 
So, Mark, what are the trends in terms of the minimum number of lives needed for a GSI offer for an employer pay case and then a GSI offer for a voluntary case? Well, the one thing I will say about being in this business is uh, in, in the multi-life business for as long as I have been is that you never give a straight answer. There's never an easy answer. Um, I, you know, my quick answer for employer pay is five lives. Then somebody will say, well, this company's doing four lives, three lives. Will you go down there? And I'll say yes for certain situations with certain producers and things like that. So it, it, it always looks like it's a wishy-washy answer. But I do think, and you and I have talked about this in the past, producers have a big impact on what you can do as far as um, flexibility with cases. So people who give you a regular flow of business, people who give you uh, consistently, you know, their, their top shelf stuff, you can really go down to those lower numbers and support them. People that you've never talked to before who are coming in with a three life case and you know one of the people, one of the individuals in that three life case has a health issue, you, you can't write down there on that basis. Um, the voluntary market again is all over the place. I would say to you that you need, um, you know, 60 lives to get 30%, that's a reasonable count but even that is tough because <clears throat> anybody that writes in the voluntary market usually knows you have multi-states. You have to figure out how you're going to deal with the multi-states. Are you going to be licensed in all those states? You really, I've never felt comfortable trying to cite as a voluntary case. So it's, it's tough when you look at a census. And again, that's why you have to answer everything with, I have to see the census first because if you see that you have 60 people and 40 states are represented, you know it's never going to happen. If you have 60 people and they're all in one small town in, you know, Iowa, then maybe it's a possibility that you can look at a case like that. So, you know, that's a long-winded answer to say, I don't know, we all make our own rules, but we make them on some basis of experience that will you know, hopefully support the loss ratios that we're all trying to get. And Mark, something we've talked about before is that many times you're underwriting the producer as well as underwriting the potential case, correct? Yes. Yeah. And I think to me, if you said, you know, put things in order as to what's most important, that's always been most important to me because, you know, the, if, if you really try to get way off the reservation and say, all right, what's the craziest stuff you do? It's usually for producers who do very consistent types of business. So let's say that I was trying to look at a case um, for three lives on a group of attorneys. And you'd say, well, it, you know, how can you really underwrite that? But what if you had somebody that in the course of the year gave you 40 cases and they were all attorneys and they all looked pretty much the same. Then you could say, well, I can really bunch that together and make it look like one big case. So your guarantee issue could go from, you know, on three lives, you know, 2,500 or 3,000 to a three life case that could get you substantially higher than that for a producer 
who you know is doing the same stuff over and over and over again. So, yes, producers who, you know, that I value in the relationships have historically given me all the information, tell me what we have in front of us, and know what they're going to see from people um, case after case. And, I, and again, every now and then they get caught on something the way I get caught on something. But, you know, just from a statistical perspective that you're going to hit um you're going to hit decent numbers as you go through the process so mark can you walk us through the process you go through to make a gsi offer on a potential case yeah i mean i really look at um a census file as the basis for where i start this off so the most common scenario is somebody sends in a census file and says the group is 60 percent to six thousand, and what can you do with it? You know, they, often you don't get a lot of um, background or support, just that here's the census and what do you think we should do with it? So the easy part and kind of the low hanging fruit, as I call it, is to say, all right, first you determine if the group covers total comp or if it just covers salary, covers total comp, then realistically you're looking at a census for people over 120,000. And you start there. So you've got an executive group over 120,000. And let's say there's seven to 10 people in that group. Um, I wanna know their ages. I wanna know their male female mix. I wanna know their occupations. And from there, you determine in your mind a guarantee issue number. And historically what I've tried to do with the guarantee issue numbers is to make it you know, kind of a formula of the premium the case is gonna kick off that will give you an idea of ballpark where you're going to go with the GSI number. I think some companies use a, you know, a ratio of lives to premium. And um, just to give you kind of a historical perspective, when I started uh, back doing GSI cases, and I talked about Charlie Havens before, a 20-person case would probably get you uh, a $2,000 guarantee issue. So it'd have to be 100% employer pay, 20 people that get you a $2,000 guarantee issue. So your ratio was about $100 a life. Now, you know, you're looking at $1,000 a life easily as you go into these GSI offers. And you can see how quickly the ratios or the numbers have gone up over the years. So it's, it's changed a lot, but on the positive side, um, you know, the industry, especially on the employer pay stuff has seemed to move along pretty well. Well, Mark, I know you've had a, a success with a concept called the fallback GSI. Can you tell us how that works? Yeah, the, the fallback is uh, interesting because it, it confuses a lot of people. And I think it's a fairly simple concept. If you, Think about that I go into a case, and again, let's use the one we just talked about before, maybe seven lives, and um, let's say the premium on that case was fifteen dollars or $18,000 a year, and maybe you gave a 7500 guarantee issue somewhere around there. Fallback concept says if everybody goes through full underwriting, and you take that premium and you double it, 
you should be able to then increase your GSI offer because in earlier conversations, we said, I'm using a ratio of premium. Well, now by having the person go through full underwriting, you took those $7,500 policies and maybe you turned them all into $15,000 policies or $17,000 policies or whatever, but you certainly increased the premium that was coming out of those seven lives. Now, what happened when we saw, um, you know, in the uh, 2008, when case, cases started to dry up a little bit, the better producers wrote fewer cases, but higher premiums per case would fall back. And as a result, um, a lot of those people had good years with fewer cases, but because of going through the underwriting, and they also got uh, full commissions versus the GSI commissions, which are a little bit lower. So they made out fine. And that's when the concept, I think, hit its, hit its high point. That's great. I know it's been very popular in the marketplace. Um, so, Mark, what are some of the biggest mistakes brokers make when they approach a potential GSI opportunity? I, I, call, I think my biggest fear in the GSI market is elephant hunting. I think that um, when, when I see a case where the existing group is 5,000 and someone wants a 20,000 guarantee issue IDI on top of a 5,000 group, I just kind of look at it and, and shake my head and say, I don't think that's right. I mean, it's some producers have reasons for doing that kind of stuff, but I don't like the lopsided blending of IDI and group. I like to see um, group pieces higher because from my general experience and, and principal's experience, I guess, what I find is if you write the GSI too high, it's gone in two years or three years. Some good group producer comes in and says, why did you do this? And then you lose the case. Um, the other thing I'm starting to see, and the trends are there, is that the higher I go on a GSI offer, the higher the loss ratios. So my sweet spot seems to be in this $5,000, $6,000, $7,500 range, and not going into the 12s and the 15s and, and higher amounts from both persistency and from um, loss ratios. And the other thing I see is that when you do these cases that are 12, 13, 17,000 in premium, they don't get looked at every year by the HR people or the financial people. When you do a case you know, at 80 or 90,000, Every year, somebody's going to be looking at that saying, do we really need to pay this premium? And I, I can tell you from my old days, you know, there were, when the banks were doing well, the banks would write big cases. As soon as the banks started to get into trouble, the first thing they came after was the IDI. And so you had these wonderful years for banks of great new sales, but then you had these follow-up years of high lapses. And when the benefit amounts were more, what I call moderate in the $5,000 range, they just kind of sat there for forever. You know, sometimes, you know, people didn't want to disrupt them, didn't want to talk about them because they were there for seven, 12, 13 years. And uh, 
and again, the persistency and the loss ratios are, are what I like. It's, it's kind of like, you know, as you watch all this stuff with COVID and everybody starts to focus on what does the science tell you? Well, what's happening now with the IDI GSI business is that the numbers are old enough now so you can say, what do the numbers tell you? I mean, it's, for people like me, there's not a lot of guessing anymore. The numbers say this, this, this. And after a while, you know you're not smart enough to think you can outperform the numbers. The numbers tell you what to do. And I've, and I've had those conversations with certain producers that say, you know, I'd like to do this, this, and this on my block of business. And I said, you know, I'm out of your block of business now. When your block gets to a certain number, the numbers are credible. You are driving your own block of business. So if you want to go crazy and lose it because you've got, you know, too big a GSI offer and when one of those people goes down, it's going to burn your block up. Then all of a sudden they say, no, I think I'm okay where I am. I can write, you know, a fair number of cases and I can do what I need to do with a GSI that's more reasonable than, you know, going into the stratosphere. So, Mark, we've talked a lot over the last couple of days about technology. What have carriers done to make the actual enrollment process easier for end users and also the producer? Yeah, I think I think technology is moving things along fast. I think there's e-apps. I think there's platforms out there that have been around for a while that are are very good. And I think um, they will continue to get better as companies figure out what exactly um, the best way to get in front of the client is. The piece that I would warn people about is that it, this is still a product that has to be explained and has to be sold. So when I was kind of asked a little bit about uh, where we go with this, I think if you are thinking that the voluntary market is a part of the future, which I think it is, I do not think the non-can that we have today will be the product of the future. I think you've got to strip out some features. I think you've got to be... Uh, expecting higher claims rates, and therefore you can't build it the same way we've built it today. But you can distribute it on a basis that'll be easier for people to get to. And certainly the, the younger generation, I mean, I think, I don't want to date you like I date myself, but our generation was used to one thing and the next generation um, is not going to do it the same way. And, you know, I've, I've uh, having kids who, who, you know, myself being in this business, I remember the, you know, my first son that I had to kind of beat over the head to buy a policy uh, and have my wife kind of say, or say to my wife, if he gets hurt, I'm not paying for <laughs> him for the next 30 years while he gets his act back together. But it is that hard sometimes to get the younger generation to get involved. And I do not think without technology advances, we're going to hit that generation the way that we need to. But um, I still think you, you need producers who can explain the concept, because the one thing I do remember is that I explained everything, then I passed them on to uh, one of the 
RVPs who passed them on to a producer. So my own son had three explanations and the following year said, why did my policy goes up, go up in cost? Because he had a future purchase option on it. And I must've talked to him about it six times and he forgot. And he had two other guys do the same thing. So they're not going to think about it. They're not going to be, um, on top of it, but they are going to need advisors that can get in front of them and tie into that technology stuff. Yeah, great point. Well, Mark, what concerns you most about the current GSI market? Yeah, I, I think very quickly it'd be the the size of the ben- benefits. I just think that what people forget is if there's a 40-year-old that's got a $10,000 a month policy with COLA, with CAT, with all the pieces on it, those are big reserves and you can bounce around um, a company's bottom line quite a bit if you have those kind of situations. So it's the inability, my inability at principle to spread the risk enough to take on those big monster um, cases. I think number two, still the voluntary market scares me with respect to how you can you know, if I, if I look at ratios and I say in 100 lives on an employer pay basis, 14, 15, somewhere in there, are going to have some kind of impairment. But when I go to voluntary and I say, even if I hit a good case with 30% participation and I still have those 15 lives coming into to the, the, uh, the mix, that means my impairment rate on that block is 50%. So I went from 15% to 50% potential impairment rate. I don't know how you can ever build a block like that that's going to be profitable. I mean, some companies may have and may figure it out. But again, as long as I've been here, I can't quite get to the point where I can do it on a consistent basis. I can do it with some producers who are very focused and, and are selective in how they get there. But I still think benefit size and the voluntary market uh, are my two major concerns. And then again, you know, we're just starting to see the docs um, uh, maybe start to get a little hotter with the in terms of claims rates that we have to watch the physician market again i I think that market can be handled uh, but it's got to be handled very carefully and so you know those would be other than what you've talked about mark uh any anything else you want to talk about the future of the gsi market no, I, I think it's definitely, uh, you know, especially as I'm kind of at the end of my career, I think the GSI market will be an important market. I think more cases will be written. I think more cases in conjunction with group contracts will be written. I think that what will be done better in the future is the blending that we talked about, uh, you know, companies who have the ability to provide both the group and then the individual product will properly put the two sides together and say, we should have this ratio of X percent group and X percent uh, individual. But I do believe the GSI market is a growth market. And I do believe done carefully, um, 
it'll be a positive growth market for the companies who are in it now and for the companies that potentially may get it in in the future, but it's got to be maintained. Yeah. So Mark, I'm going to bring in Mike Cago, but I got one last question for you. Uh, Is there any comfort or does it make a difference if the group LTD is the same carrier as the individual? Does that make any difference in decisions? Well, I think it does for me because, again, I use my own group uh, uh, associates as an example. I know them and they've screened their producers. Their producers, so they know their cases and what they're bringing to me is cases that are usually either have been in force for a while or that they know something about. And again, knowledge about what you're walking into for an underwriter is huge. So I see combo cases, as I refer to them, as a very positive uh, opportunity for me and a positive opportunity for me to make decisions on a more favorable basis because of knowing as long as the group people are on the same page as you are, and as long as the group people have in their mind that this is a positive for them, um, I think it's a very uh, good way to write business. And I think in as, in conjunction with replacement ratios, they like lower replacement ratios. I like lower replacement ratios. We're on the same page all the way through. So my quick answer is for me, it's a very... It's very much a positive. Thank you. Mike, I'm sure you have a question or two for your good friend, Mark. Well, I have a comment. One, you're not at the end of your career. You're, you're like me. You're going to like do something and then you're going to be right back in this business because some of us just can't seem to get away, Mr. Kimback. So I don't think you're going anywhere anytime soon, but that's just, you may not be with a carrier, but I don't see you disappearing from our world. You've been in it for too long and you've done such a phenomenal job. I would like to ask one question, and it's actually to reiterate what I think you've already stated. Um, In your career with Principal, because we worked together for, gosh, I don't know how many years, and we still work together today, do you ever remember a case that was, let's say, 8,000, 9,000, 10,000, even lasting five years at Principal? I remember many of them. It's, it's, It's been tough to keep those cases on the books. I think as you know, I mean, you know, you were, you were one that uh, told me a couple of times that when those people forget their cases, when the premiums are at the right level and they don't remember them, they stay on the books forever. But as they start popping up a little bit more and a little bit more, and as things get tougher, they always get looked at. So I agree with, with your, you know, your, your premise that it's tough once you get to the higher benefits, not to be seen and not to have to justify it every year. That was the other piece. You've got to be back in, you've got to resell it. And you and I know we've had a couple of cases where every year one of us would have to go back and reteach the producer why they bought the individual coverage so that the producer could go back to the HR department and explain it again to the second HR person, you know, that was there in three years or to the new financial person that came in. And um, so it was tougher. And I, and I think one more well comment and question is I, I think the fallback and you and I've done this for years 
And I actually mentioned it this morning. If you participate in the plan, in other words, if you buy 3000 above the guarantee issue 3000, you're aware of what you own forever. If you do 50 people in a law firm, which has happened to me in the past, and 48 people in that law firm do not even realize what they have, when it goes away, it doesn't stay on the books. Everybody thinks it will, but it just stays, as I used to say, it stays in the drawer. Now it stays on the computer, right? But it stays in the drawer and never gets looked at. Um, so that getting an individual person to participate, even in guarantee issue, I think we agree. And you support that wholeheartedly, I guess, is what I'm, I'm asking. If I know I have it, I'm less likely to lose it, even if I leave the organization which bought it for me. No, I agree. And I think, I think the good thing that was there when we um, were working together was you kind of had your silo of uh, having your core producers who did understand the importance of individual underwriting, the importance and the value that it could mean to their bottom line over the years. So that piece we were able to maintain and keep going. And yet, for the newer people who were coming in that were a little afraid of the individual underwriting, we still had the pure GSI as an option. So you've got the blending of the two pieces when you talk about fallback to say, listen, if you're still in this and you still want to do the individual underwriting, you're going to get rewarded because, again, you had higher comp. On the other piece, if you want simplicity and you want to do 20 policies at you know, between 2,500 and 5,000 a month, go ahead. And we can support you on that basis as well. So I, th I think this fallback was the way to not forget the roots of where a lot of us came from on the individual underwriting side. And I agree more. And that being said, if it's total transparency, it's easy to tell somebody if you're healthy, you can get more. If you're not, you're getting 3,000. So you win either way. Right. So done the right way, I think every producer can explain to somebody, you know, I always say, give somebody the opportunity. You've always agreed. Give somebody the opportunity to say yes. If they're good for 25 and we've only got 18 out there, why can they not get, you know, the other seven grand or whatever right. it is? Right. It's their family, right. as we always have said. But Mark, thank you so much. You're looking pretty good, too, by the way. You did a great job. So if Charlie Havens is the godfather, does that make you the consigliere then of the GSI marketplace? Hey, in my best days, uh, I, I could carry his shoes around, but he, he was the guy that was, uh, was the man. So you it's know. okay to be Al Pacino. That's not such a bad deal. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much.